You're listening to ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and with me today is Maureen Bisognano, Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of Institute for Health Care Improvement. She's also on the faculty of the Harvard School of Public Health. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Today, we're going to be discussing, does improving quality yield a return on investment? But before we get to that, could you tell me a little bit about the Institute for Healthcare Improvement? Sure. The Institute for Healthcare Improvement is a not-for-profit research and educational institute based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We're a small company, but we've got a huge mission, and we aim to improve healthcare worldwide. Where do you get your funding, and who makes up your staff? The Institute's funding sources include subscriptions and fees from people who attend our programs. We also have several strategic partnerships with major healthcare organizations like the National Health Service in the UK, Kaiser Permanente, Nationwide, and the Bureau of Primary Healthcare. Most all of our resources come from funds that we earn in giving various programs and sharing information. And then we also use those funds to distribute everything that we know on our website, IHI.org, at no charge. Do you have any ongoing projects that you would like to tell us about today? We do. We have the 5 Million Lives campaign is probably the most visible. Several years ago, Don Berwick, the CEO, and I started what was called the 100,000 Lives campaign. In that campaign, we asked hospitals across the country to sign on and to implement six changes in their care systems that we thought could eliminate, perhaps even eradicate, preventable errors and harm for patients in hospitals. The kinds of changes that we were looking for were things like eliminating ventilator-associated pneumonia in intubated patients in the ICU and minimizing uh, surgical infections for patients who were postoperative. What we found in the first campaign is that hospitals across the country were enthusiastic about the opportunity to join in a national effort to improve quality. In setting up these six interventions, we did them based on the science, first of all. We picked evidence-based solutions. We also picked interventions that had been proven to be effective in hospitals somewhere around the world and interventions that didn't require any capital investment and minimal operating investment. The CEOs and and the clinicians in these hospitals joined enthusiastically. We had over 3,300 hospitals in the country join They looked to us for support on our website and through call series, and by working together in a national infrastructure, so to speak, for improvement, we're able to save about 122,000 lives. We've now moved on to expand the definition and to start working on other kinds of harm in the system. And again, the response from clinicians on the front line is really enthusiastic. What are some of the other projects that are you're working? You mentioned six. Could you just briefly tell me about some of the others? Sure. We're working with hospitals to decrease infections of several kinds, central line-associated bloodstream infections, as I mentioned, ventilator-associated pneumonia. We're working with hospitals to decrease or eliminate decubitus ulcers and pressure sores. Interestingly, improving reliability for care for patients with MIs. And an interesting organizational one is getting boards of trustees on board. We have found a correlation between boards of trustees who are literate in quality improvement and who spend about 25% of their board meetings thinking about quality 
and the rate of improvement in those organizations. Because of Medicare's decision, at least in 2008, to not pay for certain what they consider avoidable errors, such as bed sores or falls or catheter infections, is your organization becoming more involved with hospitals as they reach out to you? We are. We're getting calls and we're responding by developing some tools that we think will be helpful. Maybe I can start by saying that there is a correlation between cost and quality, but it's not always what people think. When people call us for help, they often think that if they want to improve quality, they need to make an investment. In other words, they see that improving quality will always cost money. And actually, we rely on the work of a Japanese quality guru who has helped us to see the interaction between cost and quality in three different ways. His name is Noriaki Kano, K-A-N-O. And what he has done is define the interaction as follows. The first one is you can improve quality by decreasing defects that the patient or the customer experiences. And usually in doing so, your costs decrease. And that's where Medicare's not paying for never events comes in. What Medicare is saying is if we can actively work together to decrease harm from falls or catheter-associated infections, then the cost of care for those patients will decrease. It will decrease immediately to Medicare because they won't pay for them. But they're also sure that hospitals can decrease their costs by understanding how to improve quality by eliminating those defects. He's also written, I know, about providing a product that is perceived as a high value to the customer, and this also will lead to improved quality. So there's a case where if you want to create a new product and it might be a new service for teenagers or it might be starting up a new clinic or creating a connection between cost and quality that doesn't exist at the moment, there's a case where you do need to make an investment in quality, but typically downstream you can either attract new market share or you can charge a higher price. And you know, a very simple example is from my life is that there's a company in our area called Zoots that does dry cleaning. They bring the dry cleaning to my home on Mondays and Thursdays. They leave a bag and I leave it on the door. So I never have to go to the dry cleaner and they do an excellent service. Whenever there's a button falls off, they'll replace the button. And I actually do pay more and willingly for that kind of service. It's helping us to think through, are there models in healthcare where we can actually attract market share because we're so good in quality that we can demonstrate that we're exceptional over and above the average. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and I'm speaking with Maureen Bisagnano, who is Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. And we're discussing the whole subject of does quality lead to increasing costs? You brought up an interesting subject about the board members. I remember when serving on boards, I was always impressed by the non-medical board members who had no contact in their business life with medicine and the knowledge they brought as far as risk management and quality. They could be running a car company, but seemed to understand and look right at a problem that might be happening in our hospital and bring real expertise. Has this been your experience? Absolutely. Don Berwick and I have met with executives from 
other industries quite regularly over the last 10 years. And I've always been struck that both the senior leader teams in these non-healthcare organizations and their boards of trustees have a very strong belief system that if you don't like something, you can improve it. If you don't like the costs, if you don't like the quality of the product, that you use an improvement methodology and you can bring about performance change. And I'm struck by the power of their belief and the tools that they bring in. So I've seen the same thing when these non-healthcare folks come into healthcare organizations. They see both the potential and they've got the tools that we can use to improve quality. I guess everybody was reading Edward Deming sometime in their life because he certainly had an impact on fields other than medicine when it comes to quality. How do you teach leadership as far as striving for improvement? Well, we believe there are three things that are necessary for improvement. Will, ideas, and execution. Do you have the will to change? And it goes to my point just a minute ago about the belief system that senior leaders have that they can change things. Many senior leaders in healthcare don't have the internal will. They've been beaten down by past failures. They see conflicts between various professions within their organization. They see the perverse incentives of payment systems, and they don't see anybody at this point willing practice to pay more for better quality. So I think that it starts with will building. And in that area, John and I have been able to create some new models or work with healthcare organizations around the country that demonstrate a totally different level of quality and to make that visible to leaders so that they build their own will and belief system. The second is new ideas, and that's in part why IHI exists, to do R&D on intractable problems and to make those new frameworks and solutions visible to all and available to anybody in the world who wants to improve. And the third is execution. In many cases, uh, senior leaders have over-delegated. They've asked a a frontline microsystem team to solve a problem that's very complicated, and they believe that letting them alone for a period of six or nine months to solve that problem is the way out. We believe that execution is a leadership-led activity, and so we guide leaders through a will-building process. We connect them with new ideas and new people who have better performance, and then we walk them through an execution framework that allows them to get the results they want. So you can get senior management to buy in even when there is disharmony. Absolutely. Disharmony is an impediment to speed in improvement. There's no doubt about that. But I do think that it can be overcome, especially when the Board of Trustees is expecting a different level of quality performance. You know, I can't let this go by without saying that certainly the clinical staff often is the very resistance to change. How do you deal with this when the clinical medical staff is resistant to change? They think they're the guardian of quality. You know, I agree with you, and yet there is incredible energy out there in the frontline physicians and nurses. I think what our methodology has been is to tap into the people who are open to new ideas. And In many cases, when they're able to see the data and that's combined with a potential for change, with a new idea or a new framework, we see really open adoption. The example I'll use is ventilator-associated pneumonia. In the early days, many physicians were resistant to that because they assumed, as I did when I worked in an ICU, that the complication was unavoidable, that it happened some certain percentage of the time. And I don't think they openly believed at first that that was an eradicable complication. 
we worked with a group of frontline intensivists in ICUs at Mayo and Iowa Health Systems and OSF, and we found that if we could reliably practice a small number of process changes for every patient on every shift every day, that ventilator-associated pneumonia could be eliminated. And what we're finding now is incredible energy on the front lines, physicians and nurses wanting to work together to make that change. I want to thank Maureen Bissignano for joining us today and being our guest. And we've been discussing quality and our attempts to improve it in America's healthcare system. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. For questions and comments, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com or visit us on reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. This is Dr. Lawrence Robbins, Rush Medical College, Chicago, Illinois. You are listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals.